Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. I'll get to read it this morning. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. The fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour, about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. May God bless the reading of his word. You guys can be seated this morning. Good to be back with you. Uh, Neil asked me uh, to let you know if, if... you would like prayer um, for anything going on in your life, for anything around your life, uh, there are prayer cards available for you that will be taken up by the prayer team and, uh, and cared for. Uh, if you would like one of those, uh, raise your hand or something, and somebody can pass you a card. Likewise, uh, we're going to do communion after the sermon, so if you do not have your elements, there are some available for, you, for us in the back. Let me pray, and then we will jump in to this study of this uh, wild text from Revelation. Our Father, as we uh, gather together, wherever we may be, would you 
meet us? Would you distract us from everything else in the world that so easily occupies our anxieties, our desires, our burdens? And just for a short moment, would you free us from that to look at you and to see you and to taste what you offer? Teach us from this text in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the uh, most unique things maybe in the church is, is uh, there's tons of disagreements about uh, what is a significant work, what is uh, worthy theology. But whether or not you're Catholic, charismatic, uh, Reformed, Methodist, uh, even Eastern Orthodox, um, one of the most renowned books that everybody agrees on in the history of the church is Augustine's City of God. And what he did in that work is he decided, sort of interpreted all of world history in light of two realities, that there is in our world a city of man that has a king, that has values, that has uh, a way society works and how society moves and where society is going. And alongside it, in the midst of it, we have a city of God that has a king, that has values, as a way that the world works. And so what a Christian is, is somebody who is a citizen of the city of God, living in the city of man. And what he was essentially teaching us and talking about is this biblical idea of the kingdom of God. That really what the Bible is about, in, in one little subtweet, is that God is bringing his kingdom here. And, and what I want you to leave this morning with is confidence that that is where I, you put your hope. Look, while we celebrate and rejoice uh, in this great country that we live in, and we celebrate its values, and we celebrate our citizenship, what I want you to double down on this morning is that if you're a Christian, you live in this country as a citizen of another. And what's happening with that country, you can have greater confidence and celebration in than anything that you tangibly experience in this world. Now, quick review to sort of see where I'm coming from in this. Uh, two weeks ago, we were building up on this idea where the lamb is in the throne room and sees a scroll. And in the scroll, we're told, is God's eternal plan to make everything right in this world. He's going to undo all the wrongs. He's going to make everything just. And that lamb, the slain lamb, is the one who is worthy to hold it. He is the plan to solve the justice. And you begin to read this text, and, and what we see is there is prevalent evil that's both in the text and also experientially in our world. And so one of the questions to sort of ask of Revelation is, if the problem is solved, which is what Revelation 5 says, why is the problem not solved? As in, if God says there's a solution, why is there no experience of the solution? And what you're going to have to do to, under, to get confidence about the kingdom of God is learn this about the kingdom of God, is that it says it's here, and yet it is to come. 
And we're going to explore that in this text through this word that's all through uh, our text, and it's actually all through the book of Revelation. It even bookends the, the entire book. It's this word, come. It says it over and over and over again. Here's what we're going to learn. The kingdom of God, your ultimate citizenship, it is here and it is on the move and one day it will fully come. In two points, you'll see what happens when it comes and two, what you can actually do to help it come. First, what happens when it comes. Look at the text, the first eight verses really. We see in verse 1, Now I watched the Lamb open one of the seven seals. So that scroll that was sealed seven times is going to be unwound. And it's, each one is going to be shown something. And we're told in the first four seals, uh, what is famously known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And what, here, there are images that come from Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 6. And here's what they are. In, the, in verse 1, uh, excuse me, in verse 2, a white horse. He's given a crown and a bow. Uh, this is basically the problem of power. The abuse of power, the pursuit of power, how it is achieved in this world and taken and mostly using, used for oppression and for enslavement and for self-recognition. But then the next one, the second seal, says it is red and has a sword. This is blood spilt. It is the presence of ongoing war, of ongoing civil disputes, ongoing blood spilt of evil people taking advantage of weaker, uh, weaker oppressed peoples. Then the third one, we're told, is black and it is the trading of money for food. This is symbolizing economic devastation and poverty. The fourth one, it says it's pale, unseen, and it's death in Hades. Now, what do we make of these? A couple comments. One, these four things, these four seals, is not some future ending to time warning us that evil will one day begin suddenly ruling this world. And you and I need to be on watch about when that moment could happen to us. You have to remember, in the book of Revelation, John is, communing, is communicating to us something he is seeing present now. This is what he saw in first century Greece. This is not something he saw that was to come. This is not something he saw that would happen uh, you know, some predictable calendar year, years later. It was something that was presently happening in his time, before his time, and extends into our time. Secondly, notice all four of those horsemen are subservient to the Lamb. The first horseman is given a crown, the second one is permitted to take peace. Third one says, do not harm oil with wine. He's given commands that he is to obey. And the fourth one, it says, he is given authority over a fourth of the earth. 
which is a, a little bit puzzling to read. That the slain lamb has authority over these things and permits these things. Now, what you're sort of learning here is this tension of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God, uh, Jesus talks about this several times in the gospel. He says, it is here, it is at hand. And then there are other places where he says, it will fully come. And what he's teaching us is that in his time, when Jesus came as a man on this earth, he began to turn the tide and installed what God would begin doing in this world and fully one day complete. But you and I live in this parenthetical moment where God has begun something and has not yet fully brought it in. And so during our parenthetical moment, it means the lamb reigns and you and I experience sort of the leftovers of the world, of the curse before he came. So what the four horsemen sort of represent for us are a realistic picture of the fallen curse of everything that happened after Genesis 3. You need to sort of accept this um, in actually a helpful way, that the Bible does not ever mention some sort of life where if you give yourself to Jesus, he'll just protect you from everything. You'll have this clean life of no problems. You'll live you know, an immune life to suffering and evil. It says the evil exists. And actually the lamb is over the evil. And, and there's an amazing tension here. Because you have the lamb on the throne. Evil aggressively present. Then and in our world. And then you have this verse in verse 11 where the martyrs are asking, how long will you let this go on? How long will you let war prevail? How long will you let poverty exist in our world? How long will you let death and hell reign? How long, O oh Lord? And they, it's, it says they're told to wait a little longer. How do you have confidence in a kingdom with that tension? Well, the answer is, is bound up really in a total twist in this text that you have to follow and listen to because our instincts are to believe that the presence of evil in this world means God cannot exist. This is called the problem of evil, theodicy. If, if all of this is happening, there's no way there is a God out there. You know, a hundred years ago, elites in this country really believed that all the problems in this world could be solved through technology. And actually, religion was one of the foolish things that you could believe in and follow to solve the problems of evil in this world because actually they were contributing to problems in this world. But if we just put all of our trust in technology, that would solve all these problems of economic injustice, of poverty, of war, of hatred, of division, stuff like that. But it led to depression. You know, in 1920, H.G. Wells, he wrote The Outline of History, envisioning a world where technology booms 
and, the, and this world becomes a utopian. But then after World War I, he wrote in 1933, The Shape of Things to Come. Basically questioning technology and saying, rational people need to seize power and educate an entire society on justice and peace. That's our only hope. But then after World War II in 1945, he wrote A Mind at the End of Its Tether. And he said at the beginning of the book, Homo sapiens are spent. He was utterly devastated that the progression of society, that technology in no way solved the problems of this world. And he could not handle the presence of evil in this world. See, the presence of evil becomes a problem, not just if you're a Christian, it's a problem if you're secular as well, because it says, look, what do you do with the problems of us growing in technology, of growing in education, and yet evil and injustice prevailing? And all of these things happen, become heartbreaking, but you know what? If you're not a Christian, it's hopeless. But if you're a Christian... There's actually some hope in this, in this text. Here's what I mean. If you look in verse 1, 3, 5, and 7, the horse comes, and then a living creature says, come. And the Greek word there, it literally is a present passive participle. It, it, it could be translated, be you coming. And in what we're told here is as evil is coming, the closer God's kingdom gets, the louder evil gets. And it tells us this. The presence of evil is not proof that God's kingdom is not here. It's actually proof that it is here. And what evil is doing is throwing out its last-ditch hope to do everything it can to stop it. Let me explain. Um, I was uh, rereading uh, The Lord of the Rings about six months ago. And in The Fellowship of the Ring, if you read through the book, uh, one of the noticeable things throughout the entire trilogy are the incredible trials that Frodo and Sam go through on their way to destroy the ring. It's like the closer they get to Mordor, the more heavy the burden gets, the more challenging it gets, the more suffering they go through, the closer they get to Mordor. But here's what blew me away reading that book. The movie doesn't do this, but the book starts out and says that Bilbo, you know, has the ring for 60 years. And doesn't go through anything. Like there's no trials or suffering or any attacks of orcs or anything on him. And then he gives the ring to Frodo. And in the book, Frodo has the ring for 17 years and doesn't go through any of that. He's just living this carefree life in the Shire, no problems whatsoever. But the moment they construct a plan, and set their face to Mordor to go out and destroy evil, the suffering and onslaught begins. And it's like what Mordor recognizes is that its days are numbered. 
and it's going to throw out every last-ditch effort to stop the plan of redemption. And that's exactly what we're being told in Revelation 6 and 8. See, here's the question of the day. Is evil prevailing and winning in this world? This text says no. War, poverty, devastation, racial injustice, all of it. It knows its days are numbered. And it's throwing out every last-ditch effort to stop healing from coming in this world. And you have to know that to keep yourself from becoming dangerously hasty or callously cynical. Here's what I mean. If you don't know that evil is not winning the day and has no chance, you can look at what's happening in this world and get really hasty. You know what I mean? You can look out and, and become a chronological snob. Like, I hate 2021. If we just could just go back 50 years from now when it was more heavenly. Oh, by the way, we were in Vietnam. You know, we would really be in a better world. But every time that you think along those lines, you'll be tempted to want to grab control. And on an individual basis, it may not ma matter that much, but on a collective basis, when you try to grab control, you know, over the schools, over the government, over everything in society, you know what it, you end up doing? You end up becoming like Peter. When you see the threat of evil, you want to pick up the sword and cut somebody's ear off. But the way of the kingdom, as Jesus says, put it down. And if you don't know that evil is really not a threat, you will always become dangerously hasty and want to do that. Or you can become callously cynical. That is, you can hope that this world is going to get better and put your stock in all these things. And when it doesn't produce results the way you think it's going to become, you just want to give up. You just want to look out and go, why in the world Christianity with this much problem happening in the church and around the church? We see like leaders caught up in sexual immorality. You see a money abused. You see racial problems even in the church. You can look immediately at the moment and think, why even try and become so cynical and think there is no hope in this world? If you don't know that what's happening is that the kingdom is coming and evil is throwing out its last-ditch efforts while it's being pushed up against the wall. See, you're going to be invited. You're invited into this mission to actually do something to help press back against the presence of evil in this world. But you'll never do it if you don't have the confidence and hope of the kingdom coming. And you know what you need to do? You need to, you need to start singing this hymn lyric that my wife says all the time. Whenever she sees something terrible happen in this world, she sings this, Though the wrong is oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. 
you have to sing that when you look out in the world to have confidence to keep going forward in this mission because what happens when the kingdom comes is evil is going to get louder and louder and louder knowing it's ending soon so what can you do to actually help bring it how can this actually come well one of the literary themes of the entire book of Revelation is how it bookends the entire story of scripture how it finishes actually the story of Genesis Genesis is creation and what you have in the book of Revelation is recreation sort of saying here's a garden that was broken that will one day fully be healed which is really the longing of everyone in the society, right? And whether you're a believer or secular, I mean, we are more and more longing for a healed world to live in. In fact, you, you know, whenever you hear somebody say something like, how are we still doing this? It's 2021. You know, when they see a problem in this world, they see somebody say something, they see something happening, and people just say things how are we still saying this? How are we still doing this? What they're essentially saying is, at what point are we going to get back to the way the world is supposed to be? And what Revelation is trying to say is how the world is going to get back to the way it's supposed to be. And the slain lamb is God's plan to get it back to the way it's supposed to be. But the implementation of that plan is your involvement. And you can get involved in that in the same way that the COVID vaccine is the plan, but it's still got to be distributed. You can get involved in the distribution by doing something and something happening to you. Here's what I mean. Something that you can do. In verses uh, 12 through 17, in chapter 6, here's what we're told. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became as black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. The Christmas, as the fig trees shed its winter fruit shaken by the gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of one who is seated on the throne, on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. I mean, what we're told here is John is being brought to the edge of creation and the edge of history and it's like a massive earthquake where all the people who thought they were running this world, all the powerful, all the ones who ran the war, all the ones who caused the economic devastation, all the ones who led to all of the injustice, who led to all the hate, are finally brought to a place where they want to hide in a cave from the judgment and the earthquake and the, the sudden damnation they are about to face. The major figures of, this, of history are going to one day get into a moment 
where they finally realize they're not powerful and they have to run. And then in chapter 7, that Ben taught on last week, all of a sudden the genre just totally changes. And it's like this worship service, almost like a split-screen moment, what John sees are the major powers of this world hiding from what they had coming. And on the other screen is this celebration and worship service in the midst of God's presence. And then in chapter 8, here's what it begins with. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, the next seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, what in the world is this? Now, most theologians have debated thousands of things about what could that be for 30 minutes of silence in heaven. But here, here's where the text goes. It says in verse 4, And the smoke of the, of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire from the altar and threw it on the earth with her peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Daryl Johnson, in his commentary, found this thing where he said, in this rabbinical, who said, you know, you know why there was 30 minutes of silence? He says, because in heaven, the angels sing at night, but they're silent during the day so that God can hear the prayers of his people. And here's what's happening in the seventh seal and the sixth seal and what you can do. The rumblings and the earthquake that is causing the powers of this world to hide and to run and to one day finally get what they had coming is coming from one thing, the prayers of God's people. Now hear this. Prayer is something that um, often we're like, Lord, big interview today, help me get it. I have to go see my brother today. I don't like him very much. Please make it go smooth. And so prayer finds itself something habitually found rather boring, rather uninviting, rather much. But look, hear what you're being told is that life on your knees is the most powerful thing you can do in the universe and can move the major figures in history to one day want to hide from what is truly real and powerful in this world. Jacques Ellul, University of Bordeaux law professor, he once said this, the Christian who prays acts more effectively and more decisively on society than the person who is politically involved. It is how we invert our instinctive cultural hierarchy of values. Look, you want to press back against evil that's so pervasive in this world? Get down on your knees. Stop fighting fights in politics, on Facebook, with verbal arguments, 
or with any other weapons, but fight it with the weapon of prayer and move nations. But the kingdom will come not just through your prayers, but from something also that could happen to you. Because look in verse 9 of chapter 6. When he opens the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness of those who had been bored. He's talking about the martyrs. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a little white robe and told to rest a little longer. Look, these, these people who have proclaimed the kingdom of God is real and suffered under death. John is seeing them cry out and say, you say there's going to be justice. When? How much longer? How much longer can you get this? Can we endure this? And then it says this, which, which is really chilling. It says, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Look, if God is in control and he's just, how in the world can he let this happen to his people? And that word until is really the key word. It says until. The number is complete. Here's why. Because suffering, according to the book of Revelation, is going to be overthrown and ended not through the absence of suffering, but through the presence of our suffering. It's almost like the kingdom of healing will not come in any other way through the, well, other than the, the followers of the king suffering like him. Now, let me sort of pastor you through this for a second. Look, sometimes in your life, you escape suffering. Someone you know is sick. Something dangerous could have happened. And you're delivered. And we immediately think, thank you, Lord. How present is God? And it's not less than that. But we have to be careful with that type of thinking as the only way God works in the midst of suffering. Because if there's not deliverance and there's not healing, what we have the tendency to think is that God is absent and far from us in the midst of the suffering thing that's happening. But what we're told here with the martyrs is that when suffering happens and there's no delivery and there's no redemption and there's no salvation from it in the immediate moment, it's not the absence of God far from you but the presence of him moving actually closer to you, closer into this world, and closer into other people's lives. Because his presence is not far from suffering, but his presence is near because he's using your suffering for something else, to open the door to his kingdom coming nearer and closer than it's ever been in this world. Look, this is 
the amazing mentality of Revelation 6. Suffering, especially for Christians, is evil's last-ditch attempt to thwart the plan of God. Step into the shoes of evil for just a second. You think, okay, we hate this entire Christian thing. How are we going to get people to finally ditch it? I know, let's make their lives miserable. In fact, kill some of them. And make sure they never believe it. They never want to tell anybody about it. They never want their children to have it. They never want their loved ones to have it. Because every time you believe in it, your life gets worse. Surely, as we press out that plan, it'll make everything go as our way. But here's the genius of God, is that suffering, when it gets into real Christians' lives, it doesn't move them further from God. It actually moves them deeper in a way than they've ever been into the heart of God, driving them like a nail into the depth of God's character. Jesus says this powerful thing that's really confusing in Luke 21. He says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance, you will gain your lives. And it, it's very peculiar. <laughs> He's saying, if you follow me, your life's going to go terrible. But nothing will happen to you. What in the world? Because he's saying, look, if you make your life based on anything in this world, you know every day, Suffering is a threat to you. Look, if you make your children your life, every time they get in a car, it's threatening. You make your money your life. Every day is a threat to your life. You make your perception, your reputation your life. Every time you're tempted, your life is on the line. But Jesus says, if you give me your life, then everything that the world can throw at you, it can harm you, it can hurt you, but it can't ever take away your life. In fact, all it will do is drive you deeper into what is truly your life, me. See, the more evil throws at Christians to pull them away from God, in his greatest power and wisdom, what it does is only sink us deeper into God destroy evil itself because that's what happened on the cross is they were sure how do we get rid of this Jesus let's kill him but all it did was forgive the people who put him up there and open a door for you and I and in the greatest evil that has ever happened, the only holy and just man who's ever lived, all it did was reverse it and make salvation in the kingdom of door, the kingdom of God's door wider than it's ever been. And it just means this for you that right now. 
Stop running from suffering in your life. One of the key questions that you will make in life is that it is not for you to decide whether or not suffering comes your way, your spouse's way, your children's way. It's only to you what you do with it. One of the most um, prevalent photographs out of Vietnam was this photograph called the Napalm Girl. It was a little girl got uh, naked running from a village burning in fire. One of Pulitzer Prize for one of the most uh, prestigious photographs of the year. The girl's name was Kim Phuc. She said in her adult life, she said, the pain that I got that day from the South Vietnamese bombing my village left me third degree burns that I deal with even into my late 50s. She said, I craved relief that would never come. And yet despite every last external circumstance that threatened to overtake me, mind, body, and soul, the most agonizing pain I suffered that season of life dwelled in my heart. See, she was physically miserable because she'd been burnt with scars that would never ever go away but even more so she was left with a life confused and bitter and angry about how civil war could break out and burn and kill kids like herself and how in the world did she make sense of this so she went to her immediate religion that she was raised with Kaudi she began to look into all of the philosophy and teachings of it and found no comfort, no explanation of any of the bitterness that she struggled with. So she went on a journey to figure out answers for everything. She looked into Buddhism. She looked into Taoism. She looked into Hinduism. She looked into everything she could to explain how in the world that she could have a God deal with the suffering she'd been through and deal with this agonizing hate and bitterness she had towards her neighbor, towards the North Vietnamese, and through any part of the world that had no hope for her. And then one day she just found the Gospels. And she says, I began reading about this man named Jesus. And everyone who ever told me about the way to fix and make sense of your life, talked about me striving, talked about me figuring it out, talked about me taking all the efforts, and this man, Jesus, just said, I am the way, that I am the truth, and I am the life. She said even more, he took those claims and suffered like me and went and paid for all of this and suffered and dealt with the suffering and evil of this world. And so she became a Christian. And after she became a Christian, she began to take the suffering of Jesus and make sense of her own story. And she said this, the bombs of my childhood brought me immeasurable pain. Even now, some 40 years later, I'm still receiving treatment for burns that cover my arms, back and my neck, the emotional and spiritual pain was even harder to endure. And yet, looking back after the past five decades, I realized that those same bombs that brought me so much suffering 
also brought me great healing. Those bombs led me to Christ. Look, think about this woman's story. The evil of war and dropping a bomb on a village of where children are running around had to think one of the most strategic moments in hell. But in the genius of the kingdom of God, even that, all it did was fail and lead a little girl to come to know the kingdom of God. And you know what? She's told her story to thousands of people who have now professed faith in the same kingdom. You want to change the world. Get down on your knees and don't run from what God may hand you. Because evil is going to throw out all of its last-ditch efforts. And you know what? The promise of this text is it says it will never win the day. Who of you will go suffer for the kingdom? It, it sounds like a threat, but, but it's really an invitation to follow the Savior himself. Let me pray. Our Father, this is uh, really deep, heavy stuff. Father, I thank you for that sweet woman, Kim Fook. Lord, whose testimony rings so true of this text that evil will do everything it can to rule this world, yet in its greatest efforts, somehow you twist it and throw it down and still prevail. I pray that the hope of that kingdom would ring as loud as is the joy that we have today celebrating Lord, our country. And Lord, help our prayers and our sufferings to widen the door for our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.